Hello everybody. Welcome to another episode of AWE, Art Without Ego, the podcast. I am your host. My name is Lucci. And we have another guest for you this evening. Or morning, or afternoon, or whatever time of the day that you may be listening to this. It's evening for us, but I don't know where you are. (laughs) And that's okay. This individual has a lot of depth to them. Uh, We've never personally, continuously hung out like some of our other friends have. Uh, But the few times we have, and the few times we've seen each other in public, you know, especially at events, it's always been just a decent, good vibe, you know. And, you know, we have some things in common. And this person has things in common with a lot of artists, like being an overall performer, you know, not just in one area, but she's predominantly a poet, and she's also a teacher. And I'm going to allow her to go into more detail about herself as only she can. Ladies and gentlemen, folks, Say hello to none other than Cole Rodriguez. Absolutely. All right. You know. Let's see. I am a mother and a sister and a friend and a lover and an educator and an appreciator of rhyming phrases. Yeah. I'm, that's I'm gonna start there. Okay. Okay. I like that. But I like I mean, that. All of those pieces um, have such huge impact over how I move in the world. Those various pieces of my identity. So that's why I named those. Okay. 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 Now, um, what is it that is about the rhyme that hits you at home so well? It's funny, you know. I have a poem actually about this, and in the one of the lines is, um, "I don't know where it started. I think it might have been with Dr. Seuss." Mm. Um, I come from a family of musicians, and so music and musicality was like a a real critical part of my household and upbringing. And so I think that probably has something to do with it, that like from a very young age, exposure to rhythmic patterns and rhyme, um, rhyme speaks to that. Hmm. And I, I know that um, also early in my life, I got exposed to George Carlin as a comedian, and he was probably the first performer that I heard that I identified as speaking poetically. Mm. Okay. That his his cadence, his the, the, the delivery of certain. Kind 
kinds of statements or stories were just really, um, they, they had a certain uh, rhythm to them. So even without rhyme, um, specifically, I was drawn to that kind of a sound. And then sometimes he would rhyme. But um, I don't know. I think the steadiness, the steadiness of rhyme feels reliable to me. Mm. Okay. I had never dug it like that. Mm. I think there's something reliable about the rhyme. Yeah, because it's a rhythm. It's always there. And if and it's not, something's wrong. The poem that I have about this topic is actually about the idea of uh, breaking patterns and breaking habits. And for mm-hmm. me, it refers to the, the attempts to write without a rhythm, without a re- re- repetitive sound, without a rhyming scheme. Okay, okay. Now, folks, uh, what you just got was a little taste of what this vibe is like right now. So stick around if you'd like to hear more and you know i say this all the time that there is no hierarchy in self-expression and at the end of the day it's about the uh, it's about the art it's not about us because when we're long gone as human beings the art will still be here and that's what this is about So, Cole Rodriguez, tell me how you were introduced to poetry. Oh boy, okay. There's some layers to that. Okay. Um, my first true introduction was the library. Okay. Um, I think I might have had an assignment that involved Emily Dickinson. Mm. And I had to go find her and look her up, look some, look up a piece of her work. And so that sent me on an exploration in the library for her. And that then I just was sort of surrounded by a bunch of different material that engaged me. Um, but I do, ironically, I do think Emily Dickinson might be the first sort of acknowledged, formal, acclaimed poet that, um, that I, I really was drawn to. Um, and then in terms of my own writing, I remember writing in rhyme probably fourth and fifth grade, um, but not really sharing it out too much. Um, rap started to become more prevalent and I was like extremely drawn to that so I remember like writing and rhyming alone as a as a middle school aged person um yeah and then um for many years didn't think about writing poetry or rhyme for a while Uh, my teenage years were rife with a lot of um turbulence and so creative creative expression just was like the last thing on my list at that age Mm. um and then excuse me in my early 20s um i started working with an organization that works with young people and i although i wasn't much older than them i was considered an adult amongst them and i was asked to lead a group of teenagers through writing their own rhyme Mm. And um, in leading them through that, I also began writing again and, and forming 
the beginnings of what would be my adult collection of work. Um, and through my time with them, I got an opportunity to actually present one of my poems to Boston City Council um, in an effort to gather support for uh, a bill for youth jobs. And we got it, we, the, the, the bill got support. And so sort of like this rush of feeling like my word had power, my word had influence to be able to affect something that really felt great. And so that kept pushing me in uh, continuing to write, but all still just kind of in my notebook for the most part still to myself. Um, and then a friend from the block uh, called me one night and said, uh, there's a hundred dollars here at this spot and you gotta come get it. It's for poetry. And so I, um, I met him at the place that he was talking about and I shared some work and um, I was able to leave there with a hundred dollars and that felt really good. <laughs> wow. And so, um, yeah, it, it, it was a bug that it sort of pulled me in and said, come do some more of this. And okay. I started to learn about the slam poetry world and the world of people that perform this art form. Okay. So, and what was the name of that place? I don't remember. Oh, okay. It doesn't exist anymore. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's gotcha. this other great place that had huge influence in my life after that called the Lizard Lounge, okay. which does still exist. Okay. Um, I had been brought to the Lizard Lounge uh, years prior before I had become a performer. So I knew that it existed. Um, and then after that first win, I was like, oh, I, I remember this place in Cambridge that does poetry. I should probably go check it out. <laughs> and okay. And history. Nice, <laughs> nice, nice. Now, would you classify yourself as uh, a poet, a slam poet? A spoken word artist or all the above? Hmm. Lucia, I usually avoid all classification. That's the truth. Okay. Anytime somebody tries to create a box, I try to bust out that bitch. No. But I will say, um, I consider myself a performer. Okay. And sometimes I perform my own written work. Um, right. When I'm doing so, I think I'd probably refer to myself as a spoken word artist. Okay. Um, but sometimes I write. Yeah. And don't share anything. And I write in the poetic form. And other times I write in the non-poetic form. So doesn't that make yeah. me a writer? Sometimes Absolutely. Sometimes I'm a writer. Sometimes I'm a poet. Sometimes I'm a performer. I don't know. I guess none of those things really matter a whole lot to me. Uh, the purpose of my work has been typically driven by the desire to move minds to get the listener or viewer to think differently about something than they did prior to what they saw or heard. Right. Um, so if you need to be moved by a poet, I'm a poet. Okay. And if you need to be moved by a spoken word artist, then I'm a spoken word artist. <laughs> Call me what you need to to feel good. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, I you know. I asked that question because uh, there's some people who specifically say, "No, I'm only this and I'm only that." Um, I was actually on a live from an open mic that was in Atlanta and Instagram recently, and um, there was a gentleman. I I don't think of his name off the top of my head now, um, but I'm sure I'll put it in the description when I publish this episode. 
because uh, he's a fantastic uh, person. Uh, he's a poet, and he was, I think he was the host of the live, if I remember right, and he called himself a, uh, I think it was a spoken wordist. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I could be wrong. If I am, I apologize, uh, kind sir, uh, but I think that's what he said. I was just, when you said that, it made me think of that, and I thought it was worth sharing. Um, so... Tell me about your experience in the slam poetry scene. I know that you've had you've had your own impact on the slam poetry scene. Yeah. Um, hmm. In the mid, so the first decade of the two thousands is that considered the early two thousands? I guess at this time it would be yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> that is when I really became um, exposed to slam culture specifically um, and it was really male dominated in mm. Boston at the very least right it kind of felt like that to me uh, nationally but I hadn't seen a whole lot nationally but locally it definitely felt really male dominated um, and that felt really cool to me to be challenged in that way and to have to compete in a setting that was not necessarily a uh, set up and welcome, welcoming of, um, of my difference. Or maybe it was. Maybe it was welcoming of my difference because of the dearth. Okay. Um, but, it, but it definitely, I, it was noticeable to me that there was, most of my competition was men. Um, that did grow to change over the next decade, which was really awesome. And in some cases, I feel like there were some spaces I had influence over that. Okay. And some spaces that I had no influence over that, but it was great to watch. Okay. Um, and what else can I say? Um, I, I recall you being a part of a, some kind of a team. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm just being funny right now, but you know what I'm talking about. Uh, yes. <laughs> <coughs> so at the Lizard Lounge, um, they were a part of the National Poetry Slam annual competition. And so I was able to compete and be a part of that team for several years, which was great. Um, that was what exposed me to understanding that there was a huge, powerful network of performers across the country just making amazing work and uh, moving minds and shifting lives through the things that they were writing and saying and performing. Um, definitely some of the best exposure to performance art I've ever received. Mm. Okay, okay. Now, do you, are there any uh, are there any poets that were on those teams that you want to give a shout out to right now? Because oh, I know you know a lot of them. We both do. You know, there's so many <laughs> that I actually feel like I'd be a jerk to start saying names in in full awareness that I would forget. Okay, okay. Um, to name important important ones on the list. Okay, so how about this? I'm, I'm, I'm going to make this rule, and if they get mad, they can come to me. Whatever. <laughs> just say the first three that come to your mind. No judgment toward anybody else, just first three pop in your head. Oh, gosh. Uh, Tui Scanlon from Hawaii. Okay. Um, John Survivor Blake, Okay. Uh, who at the time was from Virginia, now out of Albuquerque. Um... Remember, no one's being offended by this. It's just the first one. 
Harlem One Two Five. Okay. Okay. Made a mark on me, and ultimately became my dear friend. I'm grateful for that. But early on, um, scared the shit out of me. <laughs> and one of one of my few fame claims to fame um, in my friendship with Harlem is that he's never been able to beat me. But as somebody who's never been able to beat me, he really did successfully scare the shit out of me more <laughs> than a few times. The first time I ever saw him perform, um, I had actually, I had received a, um, an email detailing that we were going to be competing against each other for the team, for a team spot. And I had never seen him perform before. So I thought, let me go check this guy out, see what I'm up against. And I walked into the space that he was performing in and he was on stage reading from a piece of notebook paper. Mm. And uh, I kind of like chuckled to myself and thought like, oh, okay, he's not ready for nothing. He's mm. coming off paper. And, um, and he floored me. <laughs> yes. Without even looking at the audience, reading <laughs> off of a fucking notebook paper that looked like he might have written it right before he got on stage. <laughs> he blew me away. And I, and I went home shaking, like, holy crap, if he can do that without actually putting it much into the performance, then I'm fucked with something that he actually cares about. <laughs> yeah, nah, it's formidable, formidable dude. Yeah, no, he's, uh, Harlem 125, shout out, because, just me personally, because he made a mark on me as well, like, that he has an energy to him that is just incomparable. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Michael Warrior Barnes okay. um, is somebody that had impact on me as soon as I met him. He actually, uh, you and I share someone in common, VCR, mm -hmm. C. Robinson. Absolutely. He's a, um, a mainstay in the Boston art scene and the black arts movement in general. He has a... Um, has, has produced several events over the decades in Boston to uplift and celebrate poetry. And he invited Michael and I to co-host uh, an event years ago. And I had never met Michael prior to that, but in co-hosting with him, I got exposed to his work and was just smitten. And he was somebody that wasn't sort of embraced by the slam world uh, for, for probably easily a decade mm. um, after I met him was when he actually kind of came into the slam world. But his work is um, really powerfully, powerful, powerfully written. No, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I've been to several of uh, VCR's events, actually, and I've seen him perform. You know, just that ABC poem, just, you know, it hits me every time he does it. Yeah, Michael Warrior Bonds, he... I saw him at an event, I forget uh, what the name of it was, but I believe Ralph Furman, Ralph Furman, F-I-R-M-I-N, was one of the hosts, if not the main host, and maybe even performer uh, at that show. It was several people there. Um, I know I was one of the future poets there, one of his events as well. Uh, but I remember Michael W., Michael Warrior Bonds, seeing him perform there for the first time. I think he was either the main feature or the last feature, I'm not really sure, I don't remember, it was several years ago, but, you know, like, he, like, you could just, I felt every single ounce of energy that he was projecting into the audience, and, like, you could just 
you could see it, you could hear it, you could feel it. The passion, passion can't, true passion can't be faked. It just can't. And, and that's what, I think warrior is an appropriate name for him because his spirit is definitely a fighting one. That's for sure. Okay, so you've talked about you in poetry. You're also a teacher. Of sorts, yes. Yeah. Yeah, more, I think when we say the word teacher, people usually uh, imagine me in a room of students, uh, young people. Mm -hmm. More often than not, I'm a teacher of adults um, and the adults that work with young people. Um, I also do work with I do work with young people um, and students uh, but I've moved in the direction of working with adults in the last decade uh, because I, mostly because I feel like the ripple the ripple gets wider mm. when you work with the educators that are working with the children right right um, my favorite student base to work with though is typically folks at university mm. folks in that both in that age group range and um, in the mindset of university I, I tend to really enjoy. Okay, okay. Now, what exactly got you into doing that? Hmm. That's a good question. And you said you work with them. Like, what exactly do you do with them? Um, which ones? The adults? Oh, both. Well, it kind of all comes back to what I said about why I create art, which is to shift minds mm -hmm. and get them to be willing to analyze and think differently. Um, I think now more than ever, I've always sort of felt this way, but in this age of technology and electronic interactions, I think it's even more critical that the skill, the critical thinking skills, analysis skills, um, get practiced. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, that's sort of, I think, at the base of my philosophy around why I educate and, and how I educate. Um, and so each age group that I work with gets approached differently, and I'm typically hired or, or there for a different reason. But what underlies all of those interactions is the desire for me to create or help contribute to the creation of critical thinkers. Okay. Nice, nice. Okay, okay. Folks that won't just swallow what they're being told. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's really it's it's about thinking at the end of the day. You know, if you if you're not thinking about anything ever, you know, what are you actually doing? You know, what well, one would say. A lot of our our current culture. I shouldn't just say current. I think for a very long time the the best way to manage masses um, is to teach them what to think, not how to think. Mm. And so, yeah, I guess that foundational piece that I was referring to is really about pushing people to consider how they think, uh, not trying to get them to think one specific thing. Yeah. No, there's definitely a big distinction, though, because... There's a big difference between opening up someone's mind and just giving them directions. Amen. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's like well, but our current 
school system in America is requisite of being able to memorize facts and regurgitate them. But to actually um, be celebrated for being a free thinker and conducting analysis and discovering a new information and theorizing mm -hmm. and all of that, uh, you have to be in a, in a typically a private institution. Um, you're you're typically in a setting that you've paid for, in in if you're going to be learning in that way. But public settings don't want to create thinkers. Right. No, I I hear you because I mean, it's you know there's there's people of. Uh, all walks of life that have different intentions for different things that they do. You know, there's definitely some people in this world that want to do good, and there's some people that want to do harm for whatever reasons that that may be. Um, but there is there is definitely a big difference uh, between uh, sharing knowledge to share knowledge for the betterment of society rather than sharing knowledge only because you got paid for it. You know, and I've, I've actually had, I've talked with other friends too that have, you know, have the strong opinion that, you know, knowledge shouldn't have a tax on it. You know, some people think it should, uh, or, you know, purely just an economic thing, you know, but generally speaking, you know, the system we live in, it kind of, I think in my mind, it instigates, okay, you can tax absolutely anything. <laughs> so when basic fundamental things start being taxed like knowledge and you know being healthy or you know in certain cases being free or alive you know <laughs> you know it just depends on you know where you are in this world and how it's treating you at the time uh it can really mess people up if you know they just don't have a general uh Introduction is something that's so fundamental that could be so fundamentally positive in their life, you know? Yeah. Well, you asked how I got into education. Um, not in the traditional way at all. I started working in after school programs as a young person myself. Um, learned a lot about youth development models and facilitative learning and curriculum development. Um, in my, the, was in my like college years and then I got away from the work for a bit of time. Um, I came into classrooms kind of organically when I started performing. It was, um, there was a link made for me through some existing educators that saw uh, that it was a draw to certain kinds of students. Um, and then I sort of got the bug of, of realizing how much I enjoyed the creation of those opportunities for students that didn't typically have them. Mm. Um, but it was in, it was at that time that it crystallized for me um, that Brown's students in particular were in a pipeline, that they were being prepared for a future that was not um, about creating or building, um, but was to feed a larger system um, of, of prison economics. Yeah, and it's, you know, there's some people that deny that when they hear it. Um, you know, people will interpret, 
you know, the, the factual realities that actually exist. You know, a lot of people have the idea, well, it didn't happen to me, so it doesn't happen. You know, it's like, so, you know, it literally involves, sometimes it's best for a lot of people in this world to literally just look in the mirror and make sure that everything is okay. Um, because, you know, it's, I mean, I used to be very angry about stuff like this and it's, it still gets to me sometimes, but I'm in a more, I'm in more of a state now where I can allow it to, um, I, I can, I can accept if it's the current reality, I can accept it, but do what I can do to change it and make it better. Um, but you know, it's stuff like this. It's like, if you're a person that easily cares about other people or just life in general, it it won't take much to get to you and really stress you out emotionally and mentally and you know it's 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 it can be challenging to not let emotions dictate your decision making it is challenging on a daily basis for every human being walking this earth especially the society that we live in amen you know um no i see and that's why i like talking about stuff like this you know with people who do teach is because I've I've taught, you know, a few classes of students, you know, poetry before. Um, you know, it was it was in connection to the group that I perform with, Be Heard That World. Uh shout out to all you guys, love you. And you know, but people who have actually been, you know, in or out of the system of teaching itself, you know, publicly or even privately, have a unique understanding of education and knowledge and how it's transferred to other people and why. This is true. What would you say your favorite thing, like, we go, I, I got the deep reason why you enjoy teaching. Give me a fun, superficial reason that you enjoy teaching. Oh my God, because the laughter that you get when you curse to students, in front of students, <laughs> is the best. Um, I try to make it be irrelevant and not a gratuitous curse. Okay. Um, but I think that um, I get tickled by how tickled students are by cursing. <laughs> and different age groups, different curses come out. Okay. Um, but almost every age group gets it at least once. Okay. Okay. Now, it's, is this something you plan or is it just for no. the moment? Like, no, it's typically spontaneous. I think that's part of why I enjoy it. Is that <laughs> happens it's organic but it's definitely enjoyed on both ends <laughs> yeah no, well I mean we were kids once you know what that's like I mean we we used to laugh at farts right you know like whoopee cushion was invented for that very reason it makes kids laugh more than anything right you know so <laughs> but you know it's a device talking to a group of 14 year olds who know exactly the words that I'm saying if I curse. Like, it's not oh, that yeah. I'm the one that's exposing them to the word. They've never heard it before. They know the word. They know what it means, or at least in some context of their own. Yeah. Um, but it gives me access because I step outside of the realm of what they consider to be orderly and expected behavior of adults. Okay. And so um, I giggle from it. I do. Actually, I was answering your question. I do actually get a pleasure from doing it. Yeah. But it's a device. It is a device to endear, gain trust, maybe 
gain interest if it's not deep enough to be trust, but gain some level of interest to engage. Oh my God, did a grown up just say shit? <laughs> she, what is she talking about? If I wasn't already listening, I'm gonna start listening now because a grown up just said shit. Yeah, <laughs> I understand. I and understand. and in college settings where it's definitely welcomed and often uh, employed by the professors, um, it's a way of taking what I think can sometimes be overly intellectualized language or approach to a subject and and give and bringing it real baseline human like the fuck are you talking about <laughs> yeah no that's the thing i mean that that explains our mutual love for george carlin because <laughs> he had a he had a he had a way of blending those two together intellectualism and filth you know amen, amen, amen. <laughs> you know his um his seven words you can't seven say on dirty tele- words, yeah. yeah you can't I've, say on television. Like five of them you can fucking say on television now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, w- I would, I would love to. See, I would love if he was alive today because he would probably do a bit about that. He's Absolutely. like, what happened to my seven dirty words? <laughs> There's like two now. <laughs> I can see it. And um, I think one of them that you don't hear is cock. <laughs> Like you can well, hear, you can hear bitch. You can hear all types of stuff. I still don't ever hear cock. Well, no, it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, not even when referring to roosters. Even <laughs> not, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> they still call it a rooster. Because <laughs> he even said that in his old routine. You know, it's like cock is only partly filthy. You know? <laughs> um, George Carlin, man, he's um. The only comedian that I ever wrote a poem for, so far, mm, at least. Okay. Um, <clears throat> yeah, when he died, it uh, it was very sad to me, um, even though I never had an opportunity to know him in person. He had such a huge impact over my thinking. Yes. Um, ultimately, he had an impact on my performance and the... the the kind of person that I am, um, but but for foremost, he had impact on me as a thinker, mm. and I felt like a teacher had passed, mm. um, and so I, I wrote a, a poem that day uh, in tribute to him. I might have to dig that out because I haven't shared that in a real long time. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Do you have it available? Do you want to share it now? No. Okay. <laughs> when it's I like, say dig out, I kind of mean like I really got to dig. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. Okay. Now, I'm curious. What was your first cuss word that you remember getting in trouble for or saying out loud? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. So my mother... Uh, Still to this day, swears like a truck driver. <laughs> That's how I learned curse words. Okay, okay. I don't ever remember getting in trouble for curse words. <laughs> I do remember her saying something to the effect of don't let the adults hear you talking like that, or don't let adults ever hear you cursing. Yeah. Um, which I later, as a mother, said to my child, except unlike my mother, 
I included myself oh. as one of the adults. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Um, but yeah, I don't remember uh, being chastised for curse words. Okay. But And I remember also uh, being seen as mature by my friends when I was little because I could curse. And I remember specifically <laughs> a boy complimenting me, uh, telling me that I used curse words with finesse. And to a fifth grader, that is a pretty fucking impressive compliment. Yes, it is. <laughs> I would have been. I would have been impressed. Most fifth graders don't have finesse with shit. <laughs> yeah, they do puberty. That's it. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, and so um, if anything, I probably have over the years uh, had to learn to curb it based on the environments that I'm in. Um, as a professional and as an educator, I've had to both for myself and others be a gauge of um, choosing to curse and not cursing because it was uh, just a part of my um, regular repertoire, but actually selecting and being intentional with those words. Yeah. Um, but it is. it has really always been amusing to me um, how those words came to be offensive and what, sort of what lies behind them. To create offense. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally hear you on that. Um, <laughs> it's funny. Um, it's Carlin. Uh, it's it, he. He was more intellectual with his cursing than the family I grew up with, but at the same time, you know, it's. I mean, you may have the same thing with your mom. My family can be funny when they cuss sometimes, like when they. Like, I always tell people that my dad didn't curse. He had concoctions of cursing. Amen, I say. <laughs> you know, like, it was, <laughs> like, he, I remember uh, my, my cousin Chris, um, if he hears this, he's going to laugh when he hears this. I know he is. But he would do things to irritate my dad just, just to hear him curse, and he'd be dying laughing, and... Dad wouldn't even be mad because he knew he was messing with him, but he enjoyed it. So it was a fun banter between back and forth, you know, and, you know. Well, yeah. I think in my family and in my household in particular, um, humor was used to survive everything. And um, a, a properly placed curse word brought humor often. Yes. I think my mom's favorite curse word was is motherfucker <laughs> and as i learned from george carlin motherfucker had so many different meanings and uses and applications um yeah and so the humor of of those applications was never lost it, it could get laughter in an angry moment in, mm -hmm. a, in a sad moment um yeah, I think a lot of different people, cultures, families use humor to survive pain. Yeah, no, it's definitely a thing. Um, I, I used to, I, I like asking people all the time, you know, what would the world actually be like without comedy? Mm. You know, you'd have drama, but it would never be happy. It would never be that happy. It would always be chill, sad. Or angry. <laughs> I mean, 
You have some joy, it's, but it's the more comedy you have, like the more joy you're gonna have. True. Although I guess maybe this is just me arguing semantics. Okay. I think that we could exist without comedy, without the creation, the intentional creation of works for comedic purposes. But life is still humorous. Right. And we would still find humor in existence because um, you'd have to be brain numb not to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. God, God is definitely the first comedian. <laughs> yes. I think I heard a great quote once. It was like, God is, yeah, God is, a, is, the, is the best comedian that everyone's too afraid to laugh at. Mm, I like that. I like that. Okay. And okay. more often than not, I have found myself hands to the air, thankful or upset or full of gratitude, but in full recognition that my sense of God definitely has a sense of humor. Oh, yeah. Like this, <laughs> there's too many things that, I mean, unless you're in, you know, a pure, uh, f you know, fight or flight response state, like if you move, you can die type of state of mind. Unless you're there... There's generally something that you're going to find humorous that has nothing to do with, you know, something you saw on TV or heard music or whatever. It'd just be something that happens and you can't help but go, motherfucker. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Amen. Okay, so we've talked about your poetry roots and your poetry experiences. We've talked about you being a teacher. But you're also an overall performer. Uh, we've talked about comedy. Uh, am I missing out on you doing comedy? Or? Never. Oh, okay. So what other art forms do you partake in? Um, I sing in the shower. <laughs> um, it's very good for you. Very good. <laughs> I enjoy theater, and I've gotten into it a little bit more over the years. I did some theater when I was young, um, but I got into uh, sort of backstage set building and stage direction and lighting mm -hmm. learning and so I really liked that and my theater experience for a long time remained in that part um, and then over the last couple of years I've had a few opportunities to work in some smaller theaters um, and sort of marry um, poetic work and theater work in those spaces and I really enjoy that and it's um, I think it, it's something I want to explore more okay Okay. Uh, now, how how did you get introduced to theater in that way? Um, as a young person, I was exposed to arts programs, um, and I did I did a few plays. Um, as a poet, I connected with folks in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, at the Mixed Magic Theater, uh, which is Rhode Island's only black-owned theater company. Mm. Um, and they pulled me in, I believe, early on. They asked me to perform as a part of something called Poets on Fire. Mm. And that was, it was them creating sort of this idea of marrying uh, the theater element with poets. Um, and then in, in meeting those folks, um, that theater company is run by a husband and wife. Okay. Ricardo Pitts-Wiley and Bernadette Wiley, and um, they are a formidable team of uh, artists, 
and thinkers and performers. And they, um, their charisma just really drew me. And so mm -hmm. I've done a couple of projects with them. And I'm in hopes, um, now that we're sort of coming a bit out of quarantine again, my hope is that we're going to create some more stuff together. Um, there's also a great theater in Waltham, uh, the Hovey Players, uh, that I was privileged enough to do some work with in the last few months that um, I think I'm going to be making an appearance at again at some point because it's a great theater to work within and they're really open to um, art, creating art that hasn't been seen yet. Mm. Okay. You know, uh, I, really, I really appreciate uh, the variation of art that you brought. I, I didn't even know that you were into theater like that uh, until now. So, I mean, we're not that close, but I thought I knew all you did artistically. No. Learning this is kind of fun, so thank you for sharing that very much. Um, do you have any playwrights that you've read plays or um, that you really enjoy? David Mamet. What's his name? David Mamet, M-A-M-E-T. Okay. Um, I've enjoyed him a fair amount. I've read a bunch of stuff that I couldn't cite the authors. Okay. Um, but Mamet stands out as an author I remember reading. Um, I did some stage direction for one of his plays and it sent me on a path of uh, reading a bunch of his work. And one of his plays actually became a movie uh, called Heist. Hmm. Um, Recent movie or former? No, I think it was in the late 90s, early 2000s. Okay. Gene Hackman was in it. Yeah, I've seen the preview for that. I never saw the movie though. It was, it was pretty good. Okay. But I'm pretty sure that was based on a mimic script. Wow. Okay. Okay. Nice. Nice. Now, um, a little fun fact. Um, do you know who else is huge in theater, even to this day? Who's that? Al Pacino. I believe it. Do you want to know an odd fact? Al Pacino and I share the same birthday. That makes perfect sense. Ah. <laughs> oh, man. It's, I, happen to th I just happened to think of that because you brought it up because he's one of the few actors I know that, I mean, I'm sure there's tons of others out there, but he's the first actor that I really followed that I found out that was heavily, heavily, heavily into theater. And I think to this day still even, still plays, he has a blast doing it. Uh, but, you know, actors like him and Robert De Niro grew up very, very shy, you know? Yeah. But then they get on that stage, you know, it's like, you're a different person, you transform, and that's what happens. That is very much so. <laughs> it's kind of similar like when you perform poetry, you know? Sometimes, because, yeah. Yeah, because like, I mean, you can do it just to share it, but to perform, your energy goes to a different level. Yeah, I think I, I characterize it as um, I become a character mm. when, I'm, when I'm performing. It's definitely different than if I'm reading you my work. Yeah. So do you have any uh, poets in mind that have directly inspired you? Like, they could be local or mainstream. Oh, wow. Um, Nikki Giovanni. Okay. Mahogany Brown. Nice. Harlem 1 to 5. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think he's impacted everyone he's who's seen him pretty much. 
um, Jessica Care Moore. Sunny Patterson. Nice. Lauren Hill. Oh, okay. Okay. Can't MC go wrong with that. MC Light. Yes. And then locally. Gosh. You said Harlem. <coughs> True. Um, Portia, Portia O. Oh, absolutely. Um, there's a lot more, actually, yeah. than what I've named. I think that different people inspire me in different, at different times and through different pieces right. or devices. There was a guy years ago, uh, Joey... Oh, man, I feel really awful that I am not remembering the last name on Joey. It's okay. Um, Joey was... If he hears this, he'll know it's him. Word. <laughs> he will, based upon what I'm about to say. Okay. Joey used to offend the shit out of a lot of people. Mm. He would come in uh, to slam and often test and try work that was on the edge or pushed buttons. Um, and I loved it. I really loved his bravery Okay. Um, and the, the, and the different styles that he would try out, um, I really just so appreciated him, and so he's on that list. Um, Douglas Bishop, mm, Douglas, yes, definitely is on that list. Um, man, I'm running through the banks of my head. Ah, <laughs> Bobby Gibbs out of Worcester. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, hoof. I just opened the floodgates, didn't I? Big time. <laughs> I, can, I, I feel you looking at me and you can see me running through my brain. No, no, no. Um, there's a, come, lot of, a lot of years and a lot of people. Yeah. Um, if you feel it, speak it, just like the mic says. Amen. Um, amen. I think I realize one of the things I appreciate about the concept of art without ego is I remember more work that has moved me than people. Mm. Like as I'm sitting here running through the banks trying to think of the names I can say to you, I'm actually remembering people's faces and pieces and not their names. Like there's this one woman in Rhode Island who did a piece on pigeons that I fucking adored. <laughs> I don't remember her name, but I remember the impact of that performance okay. and probably always will. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of, I really, it resonates for me, this idea of um, it being more important that the that the message becomes imprinted than the identity of the messenger. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that 100%. Very much so. You know, you watch Eddie Griffin, right? Love Eddie Griffin. So he literally says that, you know. It's like, I don't remember the entire bit, but 
know, basically talking about whether it's Jesus or Gandhi or Buddha or whoever it is. He's like, who cares about the messenger? Did you get the message? Right. You know? And the thing is, is you know, I think I, I recently was reminded that current culture is such, I, you know, I said it earlier, we're not promoting thinking or analysis. We are promoting a culture of following. Like, mm-hmm. literally, we comfortably and happily follow people and want followers and... Um, it's become seemingly more important who said something than what they said. And the canceling of people and the sort of blanket trusting of people on the basis of identity, I think those things are dangerous. And Mm so um, I'm grateful that I've had so many people, performers, artists, influence how I think, write, move, and perform. And yet I also proudly stand in that probably the best ones um, are the best because it was more important to them that I remembered what they were saying than that I remembered who they were. Right, right. I hear you. I hear you that 100%. And, you know, it's funny. I always struggle with at, at a public performance when um, somebody wants to introduce me and is sort of looking for information to say uh, to sort of load that introduction up it makes me really uncomfortable I kind of feel like Mm. I don't want anything said um, because I don't want my identity to shape how you receive what's coming just get it, just receive it okay, okay I, I hear you on that they do yeah because the message you know and that's the thing some people write for purely entertainment purposes and some people write uh purely for the message you know i think if you can balance the blend of those two together you know you're always going to have good quality work for yourself you know uh, but even but also if you're writing your for entertainment i think you know yeah. again art without ego it, it, everything doesn't have to move people or create critical analysis but I prefer when it's about the work. If you're about entertaining me, right? <laughs> then be fucking entertaining and don't make the most important thing that could happen be that I remember your name. Right. I will remember your name if it's, if, if you're if you hit the right spot. <laughs> <laughs> Not touching that one. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. So. Last but not least, uh, we've got a few more minutes left here. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask all my guests. All right. Some people hearing this are, may know where this is going. And some enjoy that I do this and some don't. But it's my podcast, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, no judgment either way, but what is your relationship, if any, to professional wrestling? <laughs> First of all, this made me think of um, the, the, pe- the, the end of the Inside the Actor Studio. <laughs> yeah. Where like, the, he has his standard questions that everybody gets asked. So I was like, oh, great. I get mm-hmm. to learn Moochies. Like, what are his standard <laughs> questions? 
That was not at all what I was expecting the first one to be. Really? Okay, totally. Okay, um, okay. But I got an answer for it. Okay. So my relationship to professional wrestling. Well, first off, first off, I'm curious. What did you think it was going to be? I didn't have a specific idea, but I didn't think it was going to be about professional wrestling. Okay. <laughs> um, so, um, my Uncle David, who's, uh, let's see, Uncle David's got about 15 years on me, 15, 16 years, yeah. Uh, Uncle David has Down syndrome, mm. and um, we spent a lot of time together in my youth, and Uncle David adored the WWF, and uh, this was in the late 80s, Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, I'm sure there's several other names that if you said them, I'd be like, I remember that guy too. Yeah. Um, and so uh, every Saturday, that was what was happening there, and I, that was where I was being taken care of, so I was a part of that mayhem. So, um, so I would feel like, for many years of my life, I was very familiar with wrestling. Okay. Um, okay. As I aged and was allowed to leave the house, <laughs> <laughs> admittedly, it helped me to know about wrestling because I was a tomboy and I hung around boys more often than girls. And knowing about wrestling helped in that arena. Okay. Um, and then more years passed and I didn't think anything at all about wrestling. Uh, and then I became an adult and started dating men. And uh, some of them liked wrestling. <laughs> and so you've I always had a connection to it. And somehow. then I became uh, the um, party killer that oh. was like, you know that, you know it's staged, you know it's acting. <laughs> like I, like I was exposing some big amazing you were, secret. You were that person. Okay, yes, okay. totally, <laughs> totally party killer. And then, uh, in the course of my um, theater work, actually. I, one of the actors in a play that I was working with, um, he was a, a former professional wrestler. Okay. And he really talked about the craft of that work, and it put it in a whole new arena for me now. Okay. Of, um, it was still fake. Yeah. It was still... I, I, didn't, I didn't change that position. Okay. I'm a Taurus, and it's hard to get us to change a position once we're, we've taken it. Okay, okay. But along yeah, with stubborn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but along with that stance, I did have to acquiesce that it was in fact um, a sport that required a high level of skill, and uh, and I and it deserved respect. So that brings us full force forward now to today. Yeah. I have a, a, an absolute respect for the sport. It's not something I tend to watch as a. Um, for regular athletic enjoyment, spectator athletic enjoyment. Okay. No, but I, I, but I can. No, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, and I always, I always ask people this because uh, for me it's fun just to kind of like, where are you at on this? Because it's such a, it has such a complexity of people's association to it. You know, like some people absolutely love it for different reasons. Some people absolutely hate it, uh, and some people are indifferent. And I just enjoy exploring that because there's. It's always been around, you know, like people talk about the carny days, you know, back in carnivals when, you know, some of the attractions were not so pleasant, uh, as we both know. And, uh, you know, you had things like, you know, pro wrestling even back then before it even became a thing in the, what we call professional wrestling in the United States or Japan or Mexico, anywhere else, you know, used to be just 
you know, back to Roman times, you know, but it was a lot more extreme then, <laughs> but essentially you're getting the same reaction, you know, a uh, large crowd of people that pay to see something huge happen. And in this case, it's fighting. Or some people call it men dancing in their underwear, you know. <laughs> so it's, it, but, um, but there's also, but I enjoy exploring that, not just because of, you know, what it is and the craft and everything, because I almost, I almost became a wrestler myself. Uh, I just, I made a conscious decision to not put my body through that in that way, just for me personally. Um, yeah, uh, I just, like, like the wrestling thing, um, the main thing that I enjoy with that is, uh, you know, no matter what people's relationship with it is, everyone was exposed to something at one point. And like you said, in your case, like you name dropped Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage. I've had guests on the show that didn't even know who Randy Savage was, but they barely knew Hulk Hogan. I've had other guests who only know The Rock, but don't even know Hogan or Savage. So it's like everyone has their own experience with it, but you can just tell where they've seen and what they've seen based on who they know type of thing. Bonus segments. But it's also the lost train of thought. I was going somewhere and I lost train of thought. All good. This yeah. is the moment in a poem that people start snapping, which, by the way, I think when people start snapping after a person's lost their place, the snapping makes sure that they're not finding their place. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm so serious. No, I, I think that it has like cognitive impact, and it doesn't actually bring you back to your poem. It brings you a, a further away from your poem. Yeah, you, you know what? That's you know, you know, it's funny. I think some people it helps, and some people it doesn't. Because there's time. I, think, I don't know. It just I think it depends on the I person. I think it, it helps from the angle that it's encouraging to receive positive energy and positive affirmation. Like you feel like you're fucking up. Yeah. And so instead of the audience affirming that you're fucking up, they send back like the opposite kind of energy. Like, we think you're awesome. Yeah. This is no problem. Yeah. You've got this. <laughs> but for me personally, the fucking sound of snapping is like, yeah, no, cognitively, you're actually creating a reset for most people. And they can't find their way. Like, I don't know if you've noticed, but people don't typically pick right back up they they like go back a couple of lines or yeah they but they yeah. cognitively they they're getting reset don't <laughs> <laughs> you see what hypnosis how do people bring you out of hypnosis snap they fucking snap yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's true that's true oh my god <laughs> anyhow i think yeah. i just hypnotized you out of the pro wrestling conversation you got another no. question <laughs> no Yeah. No, because I never thought about it that way until you put it that way, and it makes per it makes perfect sense. Uh, because I've seen I've seen how people react to it, but I had, while you're explaining it, I'm thinking in my head all the times I've seen that happen. Yeah, it never really helped, you know. But it is great. I, but I it's really a, do it's appreciate it as a gesture. Yeah, it's so I you can't be I mad at. To, it I don't it. I don't um, personally snap. Yeah. But I tend to like say some words of affirmation like yo you got this yeah <coughs> um if it's a piece i know i might actually say the line okay 
but more often than not, I don't know the line. And so I just, I give words of affirmation. Author. So like, um, if you're performing a poem and you drop a line or forget what you were going to say next and people start snapping, uh, how does that work for you? So I'm torn between that question. If it's for me, I know, I know for anyone it's love, right? And particularly for newer poets or performers, I feel like it's good to try to give them encouragement, but I should know better. I should know better than to drop my line and, I, and the, 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 the snapping and the cry. I, I know, I know it's, it's like an all love type of thing, but it reminds me that I didn't do my, I didn't do my job. Mm. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't, and you know me, I like, I don't like to read, but I would rather someone read than drop their line. So, so I can't be hypocritical about it. But for me, I don't, I'm, I'm not crazy about it because it means I didn't do what I should have done as a poet. Got you. Thank you. Good. Yeah, about that. Uh, hold on, I, I saw that. That distracted me. <laughs> Your um, the mic cover. Yeah. It reminds me of the puffy balls that are on um, what majorettes, majorette boots, in parades. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's what it looks like to me. <laughs> That's when you. That's when you thought when you first saw it. Yeah. Well, no, not when I first saw it, but as I'm looking at it now, <laughs> in the position that it's in, I'm thinking it looks very majorette boot like. Same color and everything. No, they're no. usually more colorful. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but texture and shape. Yeah. No, I I can definitely see that. You know. So. We've been talking with. Cole Rodriguez, poet, performer, and teacher. How are you feeling right now? Very relaxed. That's good. That's good. Um, what did you think about when I first asked you to do the show? Um, you have such a peaceful, loving vibe that I didn't know what to expect, but I expected that it would be very easy for me to join forces with it. Mm. I appreciate that, really do. Um, and again, as I referenced earlier, conceptually, the idea of art without ego um, is very appealing to me. And so I, I knew that I could vibe with that as a topic alone. Okay, okay. Yeah, no, I, I, I tell people all the time, um, you know, it's it sparked the idea for the group that this podcast is an extension of uh, from Facebook. It's literally was just brainstormed from the idea of just like allowing artists to support each other in ways that, you know, maybe not is always granted, you know, because I could, that's why I like having local people on more than anything, you know, I mean, I'm open to mainstream people, you know, at, at some points for the show, great, that'd be a wonderful opportunity. Uh, but locally, I enjoy promoting and helping put a voice and put voices and eyes on people that may not get the recognition I think that they deserve for the talent that they have, you know. And you're one of a, me a million different inspirations that I've had since I moved to Boston back in 2010. And, you know, I, I appreciate you being on the show. It was, you know, it was a good vibe, absolutely. Thank you for the humor.
decent. So like I always say, folks, uh, well, before I end this show, what are your plans for the future? You know, like, what are you doing right now, poetry-wise, performance-wise? Oof, great question. Um, I'm thinking about how I would like to catalog my existing work. Mm. Um, that's a, a major focus of 2022. Um, my new, newer work, newer creation... Um, I think is going to be going a bit more in the direction of working with theater folks and, and continuing on this vibe of the sort of the marriage between theater and poetry. Um, that's my answer for what am I doing now creatively. That's kind of where, where that energy flows. Okay, okay. Well, be sure to send me links, you know, tag me in them. You know, you know I'm going to share them for you. So. Right, I appreciate you. I'm going to try to get better at being electronically connected yeah it's okay hey i got a phone too text it it's cool <laughs> um so we folks uh, i'm sure you're listening right now uh, we appreciate you being here listening for us and we also appreciate the fact that colwood rodriguez was humble enough and uh well allowed me to be humble enough to have her on the show uh, i really appreciate her being here And like I always say, folks, there is no hierarchy in self-expression. And I truly believe that art will truly be without ego for all time. Thank you very much, folks. Till next time. Peace and love. Peace.